And in case you're wondering, yes, it does get cold in Florida. We are now coming back to our exposition in the Gospel of John. And today we will now come to chapter number six. And in here we will continue with the Messiah's earthly ministry in particular we will look at these two particular miracles that he's conducted in front of the people. Let us now look to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, you do, we do thank you for this Saturday that you've given us, Lord. And we are indeed mindful of this means of grace that you have provided for the church. We've heard the word being read. We've had our prayers, supplications be given to you. And now, Lord, we come to this time in which... The word is now being preached to the people. So be with thy servant that he's teaching, feed your sheep. And be with them and let them have a childlike love and a willing mind again to see as we learn about our master that he continually look over our souls. Though we may not understand what has taken place, though we may not understand what he has stated, nevertheless, everything that he's done is for our good. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, as customary, I would normally give you that intro, then read the text, and then go to prayer. But this one, I'm going to take a different approach. And albeit, it is because though... We're going to look at the first 21 verses in this particular chapter. I felt that it would be better to take the same approach as with the particular event at which our Lord and Savior was baptized. Again, he was only baptized once, but we have four accounts. So, let's take in consideration how each individual moved by the Spirit saw that particular event. And of this, which we've come to in our chapter today, we're going to look at two particular events, of which actually transpired in the same day. Now, these two particular events within this day, in this particular chapter, unlike the other accounts, leads the Messiah to give a sermon. Of which he is doing this with individuals at hand. Gentiles, Jews, and his disciples. And these individuals that were present leads to a complete understanding of the significance actually to the two miracles that take place. Now. First things first, as any good Presbyterian, we always need a good introduction. And of which, in being in the Gospel of John in this particular portion, the first portion of the chapter, I want to bring to your attention that there is continual harmony. There is no contradiction with our Lord. So of which, if you have your pens and paper and or you be watching through the telecast, this sermon again, I bring your attention to the accounts that is stated in Matthew 14, 13 to 36, Mark 
6, 33 to 52, and Luke 9, 12 to 17. And these particular chapters, we do have the account in the embark of which these miracles will take place. Yet one miracle is missing. In Luke, it speaks no such thing of the Messiah walking on water. Now, does this truncate Luke's account? By no means. For when I brought to you what makes the gospel authoritative? What makes it authentic? In particular, with Luke and with Mark. I brought to you the understanding they were guided by apostles. Of Mark, he had Peter as his mentor. Of Luke, he had Paul's. And of which, looking at Luke in particular, he personally attended to Paul. And albeit though that Paul never at one point does it seem or seen in scripture that he indeed witnessed the Messiah in his workings. Nevertheless, to be called an apostle, we know that on his road to Damascus, he met the Messiah face to face. Can't get away from that term. Now, as Luke narrates, he wants you to understand in his account with his particular gospel that he took it with great care. He took it with great charge. And especially taking the vocation of being a physician. He was one who was of great detail. And this cannot be short-sighted. In fact, in that same intro of this particular exposition we've come to in the Gospel of John, I brought to you Romans 3, verse 2, which... We understand that those who written the epistles and the letters and the gospel, they were charged and entrusted with the actual words of God. So you should have great confidence knowing in what Luke has written, you shall take it for its authenticity. But let's continue and see. See, only in Luke's gospel does he actually provide an introduction I'll bring it to you here with the first four verses. Since many have undertaken to compile an account of things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. By verse three, it seemed fitting to me. Here's Luke speaking here. It seems fitting to me as well. Having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out to you in an orderly sequence, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. As you can see here, Luke is giving clear understanding. I took no slack in providing this account of which was handed to me by my own mentor. And indeed, I am handing it to you with greater care as I have the backings of one Theophilus. So then of which, do not 
be bashful. But to see in the harmony of which all the four accounts will have, we can see clearly how the spirit move within each individual to provide the account of which the spirit has entrusted them. Now, with all that being said, let's examine these two particular miracles at work. If we are to do this properly, I want to, and I guess I have been the one particular individual of all the three uh, pastors to do this more times than not, but to give an understanding of context and setting and location. And of which, when we get to the first verse in John 6, John makes a note here where, in which he states, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and Tiberias. Now, you must be wondering. These things that are transpiring, of which John is speaking of, it must be after he had his discourse and healing the lame man in John chapter 5. Believe it or not, it even goes deeper than that. Why, you must be thinking. Well, it's again why I brought to you the other three accounts. For in Matthew 14, 1 through 12, in Mark 6, 14 to 32, and in Luke 9, 7 through 9, it speaks of a particular event that has transpired. It is Herod, the patriarch or governor, birthday. And of which, upon this time, he's taken to a celebration. And upon this celebration, he had his quote-unquote stepdaughter, which he had because he took to his brother Philip's wife, Heroditus, she danced in front of him, marveled and taken back by what has transpired, Harold creates an oath, and swears to this woman, or well, granted, this individual, because I'm assuming she's over the age of 13, or in the age of majority, that whatever you ask for, I will give to you. Now, in a precursor to this, Herod's marriage to his brother's wife was considered illicit. For John the Baptist told him and admonished him, you cannot have your brother's wife. Since this time, Herod has found contentment against John the Baptist. But he could not kill him. Not unrighteously anyway. So, what an interesting opportunity that the young woman takes. Of which, what was charged to her in an oath by Harold, she moves to her mother. And she said, what should I ask of the governor? And understanding that Harold had already had angst against John the Baptist, she moved forward and states to the daughter, will ask for John the Baptist's head. Of which the daughter moves forward and presents the charge. 
And scripture states that Herod contained a worldly sorrow for knowing here he was going to take a man's life. Nevertheless, again, I brought to you this. He ventured to kill the man. And because of the oath, and because he was in front of all his guests, he moved forward and done so. Now, meanwhile, all through this transpiring, if you go to Luke's account in Luke 9, verses 1 through 2, the Messiah is giving charge to the disciples to move forward. They have been charged, and I quote by verses 1 and 2, the power and the authority of, over all demons and the power to heal diseases. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings. In fact, by Mark's account, the master even sent them by pairs. So of which they do as they were commanded. They went out and preached to the people to repent. And they were casting out many demons. And they were anointing many with oil. And they were healing the sick. Sounds kind of familiar now, doesn't it? But wait a minute. Why does John account not account for the actions of the, the disciples here? In fact, he doesn't even broach to you that John the Baptist has deceased. Because with these two miracles that we're going to look at, John 20 verse 31 comes to mind. Having been written so that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John makes it very clear. He centralizes it clearly in front of Christ. But at Grant, we get and use these details to give us more clarity and understand a time lapse of which transpire. How so? Let's examine this even further. I bring to you this as, as we head right back into John chapter 6. It makes note of which a large crowd was following him. And why? As the clause continues by verse number two of John six, they were watching the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So you kind of see the harmony here. The disciples are catching traction and the Messiah in his right was also catching traction. So a large audience is being gathered. So much so by verse number three, the Messiah goes up on a mountain and his disciples sit with him there. Now, we read of this mountain that's near the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Well, by Matthew 14 and 6, I'm sorry, by Matthew 14 and Mark 6, after Jesus hears of John the Baptist passing, it states that they took a boat to seclude themselves. You see, the harmony throughout the scriptures is very interesting and quite quaint because you're starting to catch wind in regards to filling in some of the gaps. Almost putting in a time and setting of which, you know, 
how much time has transpired? Because it's really easy and convenient to read the scripture and think, okay, it's a day and another day and another day. But these details that the apostles have given us gives us even more clarity because it allows us to see time as it expands. So I'm even telling you now, between miracles or between these aspects of time, our Messiah was not slack. You can see in this aspect, which you could probably expand for what? A last of six to 11 months. As times pass by, this is what they were charged to do. Proclaim the gospel and heal the sick. Which is quite quaint because now after doing so much of it, you would catch a crowd. Heal me, my Lord. Have mercy on me, my Lord. It makes perfect sense. By verse number four in John 6, it gives another indication of time. The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. When did we last hear this adage? John 2, as he's coming to cleanse the temple. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think there's two Passovers in one year. So it had to be expected that time has lapsed. So then, with the many signs that were done, why was it not necessary for the scriptures to convey it? John stated it. In John 20, verse 30. So then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, but they were not written in his book. But the two signs that were necessary, the two signs that were necessary to the benefit of your faith was that you would believe in him and there will be life in his name. Hmm. It's interesting now that given all this that has been transpiring, and as the crowd amass, they grow. We see by John 6, verse 5, our Lord raised his eyes and he sees the large crowd coming to him. Could it be that this is a continual continuation of what he spoke of in John 4, 34 through 37, which reads, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, raise your eyes and observe the fields that they are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving rages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. Huh. I mean, to continue off this adage, seeing as he sees the crowd amass our Lord with mercy, compassion in his 
humility. Answers my question well from the consistency of the adage in John 4, to which by Mark 6, 34, he felt compassion for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And on that same day, on that same day of which he was to perform that miracle, he started by teaching them. But what would you think would the Messiah be teaching? I mean, Mark 6, 34 states he began to teach. But in Luke 24, and by verse 44 to 47, as Cleopas is walking with his companion, it's pretty evident here what might have been taught. For the Messiah states here, these are the words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are to be written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Even so, I truly believe as Luke 24 Continues by verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and raise again from the dead on the third day. Now you should have more harmony to understand the sermon given in John 5 about the resurrection. He now broaches this, in my humble opinion, to the people that day. And by verse 47, that repentance for forgiveness and sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Ah, now the discourse with the Samarian woman should now come into play. You see, our Lord and Savior is not slack. And that all accounts give harmony in one way, shape, or another but their personalities are at work here and john is trying to show you that your focus in his particular gospel will be towards the christ and in that consistency was the one thing we continue to hear even towards the end of the chapter that you will know there is life in his name john 1 4 through 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the dark, and the dark did not comprehend it. So now let's look a little bit closer and examine the two miracles at foot of the first. By John 6 and verse 5, as it continues, the Lord said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that the people may eat? Here we have a testament of the Messiah to one of the disciples to make note. For Mark, Matthew, and Luke's account do not prevy this particular statement. But it's only John who makes it apparent to the reader. But his logic to why he includes it is by verse number 6 as it continues. For he was saying this only to test Philip. For he himself knew what he intended to do. So then we should note here the wise and holy counsel of our master. For in the other account, it's noted the disciples 
were congruent in this remark. They note to him, Lord, we are tired. The hour is late and we are past the time of feasting. And of the individuals, look at the math. Let them go home. Or of which, let them go to the surrounding countryside and find lodging and something to eat. But what does our Lord do? It's consistent with John 4, 35. He tells them, and this understanding is right, by what we learn by John 6. Oh, I know what I intend to do. So, by Matthew 14, 16, by Mark 6, 37, by Luke 9, 13, he commands them, oh, you're actually going to give them something to eat. But as we return back to John 6, in particular by verse number 7, Philip answers back and he says, 200 denarii worth of bread is enough for them, for each will just receive a little. So then what is stated? By verse number 8, it continues. Then one of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, Lord, here is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But again, what can you do with five loaves and two fish? You see, John 4 comes back again here. Four of which... The disciples in their short-sightedness did not know what was meant by the Messiah to make this statement of which you will give them something to eat. For remember, he stated in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And by John 6.6, 6, understanding what he intended to do, he was going to show what that work entailed. So, it's even in particular because <laughs> for Andrew to go and find the young boy, not exactly knowing what's going to happen to the five loaves and the two fish, he does exactly what his Lord asks. For by Mark 6, 37 to 38, he stated to him, you know, how many loaves do you have? And he said, go and look. And of which they found the young boy. By Matthew 14, 18, our Messiah says, bring them here to me. For he, by his own account, stated that is enough. And in which Mark 6, 40, Luke 9, 14, and John 6, verse 10, we note then the number of individuals. Some were told to recline in groups of 50. By Mark 6, we know that some reclined in a group of 100. And of which from there on the mountaintop, coming down to receive the loaves, the five loaves and the two fish, our Lord looks up, he gives the blessing, and he gives thanks. And of which, after giving thanks to those who reclined in those groups, he also did it to the fish. By verse number 12 in John 6, they had eaten their fill. 
And as it continues, they gathered up the leftover pieces so that nothing would be lost. And upon gathering up, they filled up 12 baskets from five barley loaves and two fish. So then by verse number 14, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, truly, 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 this is the prophet who's come into the world. And, you know, there's some sight to behold upon which the baskets were filled. For by verse number 12, it was the remaining amount and the proper amount to which the remaining 4,000 who stayed with the Messiah, according to Matthew 15, 32 to 37, was also filled. But what can we note of this? I mean, by their statement, the people are stating that truly, Truly, based on what you performed, this sign, this wonder to do so much with so little, surely this is the prophet. Oh, they took excitement to thinking that the Lord is at their whim. But no, 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 that is definitely not the case. For Calvin states, clearly they saw the value was the blessing of God against the sight of what should have deliberately shut our eyes. But nevertheless, our Lord shows do not get excited at this set of luxury. To which John continues off this adage that by verse number 15 in John 6, Jesus aware of what they intended to do and to take him and make him a king. He withdrew to himself to the mountain yet again. Only this time alone. Now upon which. After showing the first miracle in the first portion of the day. We've now had a time lapse. And sunset has arrived. And the evening is at hand and darkness has engulfed the sky. By verse 16 and 17, we continue to see that the disciples went down to the sea and getting on a boat to cross to Capernaum. And it's understandable given that by Matthew 14, 22 to 23 and Mark 6, 45 to 46, they were doing this at his command as he dismissed the crowd. In fact, upon which, after dismissing and dissipating the crowd, we can kindly understand why they would probably want to make haste because they understood, well, if we take the boat now and travel to the nearest city, we should be there within an adequate set of time. But, ah, the wise and holy counsel of our master and his wisdom, <laughs> knowing full and well, again, by John 6, verse 6, what he intended to do. I'm pretty convinced. Just as the miracle was meant to be for the individuals, this miracle was meant in particular to those disciples. Why do I state that? Let us continue to read. 
by verses 17 through 19 as it continues here. John 6, it had become dark, but Jesus was not with them. By verse 18, the sea now has become rough. And by verse 19, they had rowed a far length. Now, in John, it is stated 25 to 30 stadia. And a stadia is pretty much an old Roman Greco measurement. So pretty much one stadia is approximately 185 meters. So in this retrospect, with 25 to 30 stadia, they traveled approximately 4,600 meters to approximately 5,500 meters, which if you're thinking in the empirical numbers or in our day and age in the States, is approximately three miles. So they're three miles offshore. Nautical, albeit that they're in sea, but three miles offshore. And given that they felt they were so far, it can feel as if they were, it was almost an eternity of which it will feel to get to the next destination of where they were to achieve, especially traveling at night. Now, in Mark and Matthew's account, they give an adage of the fourth watch of the night, but it was not included in John's account. But John is not slack, is not slack for not mentioning this. For if you were curious as to what this fourth night entailed from a time lapse, it was between the hours of 3 to 6 a.m. And what's interesting about this duration is that there was an old adage about this particular time slot. It was known that pagans would take to this time to perform heinous acts. And I'll leave this to your imagination and given your experience as to what the pagans would try to do. But around this same time and adage, it was also understood in Genesis 32, 22 to 31, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. For if you recall at that one point, he wrestled and did not let him go to the break of dawn until he was blessed. So he struggled. Nevertheless, this particular adage always carried a sense of something was to transpire. So albeit, it seems quite quaint that our Lord would choose this time to perform his second miracle. Given the fact that in Genesis 32, if you understand the adage of the angel of the Lord, he might have done it once before, but that's a different story for a different day. Nevertheless, we understand now what the Messiah tended to do for by Mark's account. <laughs> he came to them walking on the sea. And what's interesting in Mark's account by verse 48, he intended to pass them. So earlier in the day, he tells them, go on, make your way to the next city and I'll meet you there. It's kind of curious because though we don't get the account, they probably asked him, well, Lord, how do you expect to get there? Where's your boat? <laughs> so by what means are you going to travel? Well, not knowing what he intended to do, we have by the accounts he walked on the sea. And by walking on the sea, which is something you don't normally see for a human being to do. 
They thought they saw a ghost. They became superstitious. They were frightened. Ah, it's about the right time to see this crazy stuff now, isn't it? But our Lord and Master does very well. He said, it is I. Do not be afraid. And that's something that I want you to see in regards to John's account. Though he did not give that time span, I'm using it to give you some uh, ideals and to give an imagery in regards to how this uh, miracle took place. For John to just write, it is I, do not be afraid. It goes back to what I said again. Everything is focused on Christ. And what he's trying to show is rest and assure if you believe in him, not only would you have life in his name, you should also not worry. You should also not tarry. You should not be anxious, but have comfort. And I say this because this is going to get tested. <laughs> Four, I want to note to you in regards to a particular breakdown in John chapter six, the two miracles transpires and then we have Christ's sermon to the people, then to the disciples, and then, I'm sorry, to the people, then to the Jews, and then to the disciples. But upon after having the sermon to the disciples, he makes a note, John does, of Peter's confession to him. Why is Peter's confession relevant in John 6? Let's go to Matthew's account of this particular miracle. In verse 28 of Matthew 14, as the Messiah, if you want to just say gliding through the waters, but again, he's walking. Peter responds and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So our Lord does right. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on water. Amazing. I mean, the Messiah told the lame man, do you wish to be well? And thinking, well, I should, I'm looking to just be placed in this water. All he said was to pick up your pallet and walk. And he did so. At which Peter now, after making the point to the Messiah, asked, to come, the Messiah says come, and Peter does. But note here what happens to Peter. By verse number 30, after becoming frightened, after seeing the wind, he began to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. Why do I make this relevant? Because by verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand, took hold of Peter, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? For by your own words, Peter said, Lord, if it is you, if it is you, if it is not a ghost, if it truly is you, command me to come to you on the water. And by the response taught here, by Peter getting out of the boat as he begins to sink at the sight of 
uncomfortable circumstances, he doubted him. In fact, was this not the same Peter who was with the apostles as the Messiah took five loaves of bread, two fish, and fed 5,000 individuals, which something that should have been impossible. I want to bring you back to the account now with Mark because Mark puts it all together. For as the Messiah got into the boat with them and all of a sudden the wind stopped, they were utterly astonished. Were they not astonished when he fed 5,000? No, seems not. In fact, why? Because by verse 52 in Mark 6, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. All of a sudden, the acts and the signs of which the Messiah performed in front of all the individuals gave no insight to them. That's what the Messiah is going to do with the three sermons to the individuals at work. He's going to give them insight. He's going to give them understanding. Do not look at the signs again and again and again. He's going to bring Peter's confession at point. This is what John is showing. Ah, everything I brought to you had intent. I wanted to show you. All the personalities were at work with all the Gospels, but John in particular is putting your focus to the Messiah. And though, as Luke showed with great detail, he took to a particular miracle, which was the 5,000, he did not speak of Jesus walking on water. And though, Matthew and Mark and John speaks to Jesus performing that act in front of the disciples. It was in Mark who gave us an insight of how come they didn't understand it. And now the Messiah is going to take to the next portion of this chapter to explain to the individuals, Gentiles, Jews, and the disciples, what they all meant and entailed. And it's going to be a lesson for us as well. Why? <laughs> we see the work of the Lord in our own lives, yet we harden our own hearts. For when we call to him for something that we need, something that we're at stress, something that we're anxious about, we ask, and when it's presented an answer of the uncomfortable situations, we respond with, Lord, save me. We cry like Peter. We cry like him. But what does our Lord and Savior do? As Peter was beginning to sink. He immediately reaches his hand and saves him. I bring your attention 
Now to the larger catechism question number 180, in which it states, what is it to pray in the name of Christ? For it should be a lesson to us all after receiving the means of grace here in every Lord's Sabbath. It is not a holiday as the humanist wants to portray. It is not. This is an active faith. And upon which, when you work actively in your faith, it is of an interesting point that the divines give in what it is to pray in the name of Christ. By answer, they said to pray in the name of Christ is in obedience to his command and in confidence in all his promises to ask for mercy for his sake. Not barely mentioning or just mentioning his name, but to draw encouragement to pray. To pray with the hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediation upon your behalf. I brought to you, and we did a discourse on 1 John. So I'm going to bring this back to light and hope it brings to your remembrance as I will close now with this and right on time. By verse 5, and, uh, by verse five I'm sorry, by chapter 5 and verse 13, John states, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In him. This is the confidence we have before him that if we ask for anything according to his will, he will hear us. And by verse 15, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Let those two signs be an understanding to us today that though we see the work of God in our lives, we should not harden the, our hearts. And as Pastor Jason will come in the next iteration of God, John in chapter 6, you will see how he will show and give more clarity as he brings those signs to light for the people. Shall I now let to our Lord our God in prayer.